1: There have been three majors this year, and I have put actual money on the champion of each of them. You're a shark on grass. Scotty Scheffler, Justin Thomas. Are you going to name them? And now Matt Fitzpatrick. In fact, I had money on Matt Fitzpatrick and Will Zalatoris, two of the four people I bet on. So I was the one hoping for the playoff with the two of them and just saying, I can't lose. What happens if you bet on the two guys to win and they make a playoff? Do you win either way or do you lose either way? There's eventually a winner so you get whoever won.
2: Yes. Th- thank you. I just- <laughs> Well, apparently
1: that's a very difficult concept for you to yeah. understand.
0: You did ask the question, Peter. I did.
2: I did. I was like a Stephen A. Smith on hockey moment. I don't want no ties. So there's no way I can denigrate any of this accompli- It's Good. You did great. I heard you also saw Trevor Rogers pitch, but he lost. He didn't win just because you were there.
1: Yeah. I don't want to talk about that. I want to talk about how I can pick golf winners. Well,
2: I do, because if you looked at Trevor Rogers' ERA two years ago was something like, I don't know, five and a half or six. But all of his, not just the the FIP and the strikeouts and the walks, but the even deeper underlying metrics, the stuff that made Tom draft Trevor Rogers in his fantasy league yes. and made me protect him, were really interesting and exciting. It was like this this case of advanced numbers screaming. Breakout, breakout,
1: and he had a great year. Yeah, you know what was neither interesting nor exciting? Do we have any clue? Watching him pitch today at Citi Field.
0: (laughs) I think what it really comes down to is, forget about the FIP. Just follow Jordan's G-U-T.
1: It's a considerable
2: one. (laughs) I've said it before. My analytically driven pick, statistical minded, all the arrows pointing the same way, choice for the U.S. Open did not even make the cut. So Who was it? I'm not going to name him.
1: Wow. Oh wow!
0: Wow! The shame. Peter's lukewarm predictions. It's been a bad year for the Deeks in terms of just getting left at the altar. We had Zalatoris once again. You even pulled back on the podcast with Sobel. You're like, yeah, after looking at the numbers, I don't really love the Zalatoris pick as much, but you did bet on him.
1: I put my money where my mouth once was, and then Chris Paul gets to a
0: game seven against the Dallas Mavericks and then falls apart. It's been a rough go for the last few weeks for the Deeks, but I will say this. It's always next year. I just want to make sure
2: because I was not here last week, and I want to thank you guys for covering. I just want to make sure you got my return pun. I'm not going to name him. Oh dear. W- w-
0: what? And we're back.
2: Eight the shoot, Paul, the runner. Loose ball, it's gone. With 4.4 to go. Shannon, don't want to fall! Shannon from the corner, and it's over. The crowd goes up both far and near for underdog, underdog, underdog. Joe Namath, number 12, has been the one big sideline. He's come down here and he says the Jets are going to win. In fact, he doesn't even predict it. He says, I guarantee a Jet victory. Oh, my kid,
1: I even in the guy's league. In this lifetime, you don't have to prove nothing to nobody except yourself. Underdog. they're bigger faster stronger more experienced and on paper they're just better oh my goodness the longest shot has won the kentucky derby Rick strike in a stunning
0: unbelievable upset shock it all in college basketball
2: underdog Underdog.
1: I expect you boys to go out there and not take this team lightly, because I promise you, they're gonna come at you with everything they've got. What is that? Go in the distance, Creed.
2: Eleven seconds. You've got ten seconds. The countdown going on right now. Morrow, up to yourself. Five seconds left in the game.
1: You believe
2: in miracles? Yes. By George, the dream is alive.
1: Speed of lightning, roar of thunder, fighting all who run or plunder. Plunder. underdog
2: underdog underdog
0: well then i guess there's only one thing left to do win the whole fucking thing
1: all right if that theme song weren't clear enough you are listening to the underdogs podcast i'm jordan brenner joined as always by my yankees companeros don't even I can't even do it. No. Oh. Absolutely not. <laughs> I'm joined as always by my friends and partners, Tom Haverstrow and Peter Keating. And today we've got a bit of an origin story for you. A bit of a love story, a bit of a when Jordan met Tom. A bromance, if you will. Oh, no. A summer bromance. We are dialing all the way back to when Tom was an up-and-coming rookie at ESPN and he had a great idea. And he needed an editor. Who was willing to trust a great idea from an unknown talent, a superstar in the making. He wanted to study how teams and and executives performed in the draft. And he launched something that became known as the Draft Initiative. Yes. On the heels of Lost's Dharma Initiative. Wow. We launched the Data-Related Analysis for Truth (laughs) (laughs) Initiative, (laughs) where Tom studied pick after pick, value after value, figuring out who was the best drafter, who was the worst, what trends you could learn from where someone went to college, how many years in school. And all I had to do was sit there and just click publish on a few pieces. It was great.
2: And a lot of it was by hand because spreadsheets, I don't believe spreadsheets existed at that time yet, right? 2009? Where, where, where were you living? Oh, oh, I thought I, I thought it was decades earlier than that, that we were stretching back. How old do you think Tom is? I was told the research goes back to Bill Russell's
1: draft pick. So I thought. Would, would you let me praise our friend, please? Come on.
0: You called me a Yankees companero or something like that. I'm
1: just trying to do my stupid John Sterling impression. And I, as usual, I failed. The milkman. This was when Tom announced himself to the world. To the world and beyond. Like a rookie Luka Doncic draining threes, Tom came out firing. And guess what, guys? We are going to revisit the draft initiative today. With some updated stats, some updated information. Tom's got that for you because you know what? There's nothing like a greatest hits concert.
0: Got to play the hits. The draft initiative was really just a ruse for me to talk about how good Wake Forest is. That really is all (laughs) it is. As we do on this podcast a lot, the draft initiative in its original form and in its current form continues to say the same thing Go Deeks.
2: Oh, here's to Wake Forest. (laughs)
1: hearts are flowing They will sing a hymn for
2: glory. <laughs> oh, and
1: like
0: ever ha- <laughs> everyone needs that earworm in
2: their life some lives. demonic music yes
0: what else are we going to talk about
1: today we've got the draft we got more drafts. And maybe a little bit of uh, some early NBA futures for next year. Now that we've crowned a champion, the Warriors, uh, well-deserved NBA champions. Once again, congrats to Mays and, and all his Warrior fan friends.
2: I have a surprise uh, question for you guys, too. Since Jordan called us his companeros, you know, John, John Sterling's legendary Yankee announcer is taking time off this summer. And the folks who are going to rotate in and call games in his place are being viewed as Potential successors for when Mr. Sterling when the day comes where he's finally ready. Is,
0: is it mad dog?
2: I was just wondering if either of you guys have an underdog pick for new Yankee play by play radio
1: announcer. I think I would be I would be excellent. I'm just saying. It has
2: to be someone with like a, a new compelling New York attitude and story and relationship to Yankees history and someone who can get along with Susan Waldman. It's me. Not a job anybody could fill.
1: Did you know Susan Waldman was a musical theater star back in the day? (laughs) I did, but I didn't connect that to to your love for her until just now. And seeing as I did host a podcast on the Tonys, I believe this is a match made in heaven. There you go.
0: You say was a musical star? I mean, come on. Every time she sings the anthem, she reminds us. That's
1: true. They win. You know, the Knicks used to have her sing the anthem before games because they kept winning when she did it. It was like a good luck charm. We should have had her record the theme song. Jesus. (laughs)
2: I'm picking Ricky Ricardo, the Spanish language broadcaster. I think he would be outstanding. He's my underdog pick. What about Sweeney Murty?
0: What about an A-bomb for (laughs) A-Rod himself? You could have A-Rod be the the host of the the New York Yankees play-by-play. Wouldn't that be fun? I heard Sterling is retiring sometime
2: soon to spend more time with his three grandchildren. You know what they're named? Oh, God. High, far, and gone.
1: Tom, NBA Draft.
0: Maze, can you cut him out? Thank you. All right. Two-person booth here. It is hot. It is hot. It is fun. It, uh, uh, The Draft Initiative. Let's get going. Oh,
1: my goodness gracious, Tom. <laughs>
0: of all the things I have seen, Roger Clemens is in the Draft Initiative, John. Jordan's in the booth for the Draft Initiative.
1: Everyone outside New York has no idea what's happening right now.
0: All right. So I think... The draft initiative is probably my favorite. I don't know, Jordan. was a part of it, so maybe I'm just saying it because he's on the air with me right now. <laughs> but I feel like it was like the coolest thing that I'd done at ESPN. I remember staying up late at night the night before I sent the email to John Hollinger because he was using all, all of his data, his estimated wins, um, added metric, and PER. And since then, I've I've upgraded, no disrespect to PER and John Hollinger, to to uh, win shares. But I remember like the most nervous I've been in my career is. Like, Like, when I pressed send on that email with the spreadsheet to John Hollinger, because it was like, you know, you're sending uh, a demo CD to uh, Beyonce. Like, Peter, you've done that before, right? You've sent a demo to (laughs) Beyonce? or
1: You know, the scene in Forgetting Sarah Marshall actually was based on Peter.
0: (laughs) What did you exactly think of my demo? Like, did you get it? Did you get it? Oh, no. I was going to listen to that, but then... um, I just carried on living my life. I
2: think you got a more respectful uh, response from John Hollinger. That I ever got from any of my tapes.
0: It worked out. I didn't get fired uh, over the draft initiative. And it spawned like 13, 14 articles, right, Jordan?
1: We had a whole team of people writing pieces off Tom's research. Using all the angles. It was great. He nailed it. We're
0: not going to go through all of the angles that we we did for Insider. But I think there are a couple that I think we should talk about because this draft coming up on Thursday night, um, it has like... Three, I think three prospects at the top with Jabari Smith, Chet Holmgren, and Paolo Banqueiro. I can't remember where he went to college. Not important. Um, and the thought is, okay, after that, it's open season. We don't really know what's going to happen or who's going to trade up and trade down. But if we look at the stats of what the average expected value of each slot in the draft, we find that it is not... Um, the number one draft slot is not as bankable as we used to think. And I think when we are say ooh, Chet or Jabari or Paolo Bancaro, Peter pointed out maybe the number three slot is the most valuable of all. And that's really funny to me. Is like thinking everyone's trying to get the tank for the number one pick and we do the whole draft lottery. But if we look recently, the, the number one pick hasn't fared very well. And we'll start with Zion, Williamson, Jordan. It's because he went to Duke, right? That Zion yeah. didn't pan out as the number one pick so far
1: in all the injuries. Yeah, nothing and to do with injuries. It's just where he went to college.
0: The real way you do that is say, that shows how great Duke is. Is that they always peak at Duke, right?
1: Right. Yes, that too.
0: That Coach K, he's so good at this whole coaching thing that they never seem to pan out in the league. And actually, if you look at um, the Duke Blue Devils as, an, as a team, uh, as a college, sorry, their prospects don't pan out very well in the league as well as uh, you'd expect. You, of course, you have your Shane Battiers and your Kyrie Irving, your Brandon Ingrams. They've all done- The Jason Tatum guy is pretty good. He's he's also very solid. It
2: kind of breaks down into two eras. There was the era where they stayed at Duke and were really great and played as a team in college. and Then when Coach K started selling out to the one-and-done players, <laughs> then they out, yeah. peaked at Duke for a different reason because they just weren't ready to go into the- you know the pros, so it's actually multifaceted ways you can over credit Duke wrongly. Just be careful.
0: We look back at, at recent drafts and we see that if you break it down by draft slot over the last five years, actually, the number one pick hasn't yielded the most value. The total win shares that you've gotten out of the number one pick is actually less than the number three and is actually less than the number five and is actually less than the number 12 and 14. And you keep on going down the line and you find out that of the last five drafts and you look at their output in the NBA as measured by win shares, um, it's actually the seventh most valuable slot. Um, And that doesn't mean that like if you have the number one pick, I want to be at 22 because they've had more value in the last five years. It just goes to show you that we either haven't seen these players fully develop into what they can become. Five years is not a whole lot of sample size, but I do think for the the draft skeptics out there, there's a lot of evidence here in this particular angle that it really is a crapshoot. I mean, over the last five years, if you took out the number three pick, which yielded, you know, Luca and Jason Tatum, um, there is actually more evidence to show that picking at the end of the lottery you fare better than picking at the top of the lottery. That it is really random.
1: Let's be fair. It's, a, it's a, That's a really small sample. You're And you've got data going back to 1989. So I sort of don't like the cherry picking of five years because— Because it's Zion and Duke. Right. Two of those five number one picks, Zion Williamson and Markel Fultz, have been completely decimated by injuries. And that skews the sample, right? And I don't think any of us—is any of us ready to give up on, on Zion Williamson right now? hint to later in the show no
2: no but why should injuries be distributed in such a way that they hit guys who are drafted number 1 more than any other spot in particular like what i would be really concerned about is is as the development of players skewed has skewed younger in recent years and the focus on younger players gets so much more attention when you have an outstanding great season you're likely to regress some even if you're developing cuz you're a younger player I'm just wondering if what we're seeing is that there were a large number of players who may have actually peaked at the age of 18 or 19 or 20 and it's easy to it's easier now than ever to overrate a great college player is it not because if somebody separates himself from the landscape do we have reason to think that the dominance will continue?
0: I think there's really interesting theory um, and actually reporting around this idea that players, elite, um, elite players like Zion or Kyrie. I'm not cherry picking Duke guys, but thinking <laughs> blue chip prospects coming into the league that have injury history or injury issues. Emphasis on blue, blue, blue chip. <laughs> nice. <laughs> that there is some theory that because these kids, like teenagers, are being run into the ground at AU camps nonstop and they're not really taking care of their bodies, that if you're an elite player at 17, 18 years old, 16 years old, you're just going to come into the league with the body of like a 35-year-old. And that's what Baxter Holmes at ESPN has been reporting a lot on, is that a lot of these elite prospects come in with so many red flags injury-wise. But besides that, what Jordan pointed out is that if you actually look at the larger sample size. Number one picks are v- more valuable than the number two and number three, et cetera. Um, but I do think it's something worth talking about is, is tanking worth, all of the losing, is it worth getting the number one pick? Or would you rather be later in the first round or in the lottery? Because you look at Donovan Mitchell, you look at Bam Adebayo, you look at Tyrese Halliburton, those weren't blue chip top five picks. They were at the end of the lottery. And I think there is something to the fact that I think GMs now are a little bit overconfident in their ability to scout talent at the top of the draft. And it's more likely that we don't really know much about these guys. And I actually feel like if you're in the position of like eight through 15, I feel better about that because you get a lower salary and you don't have the expectations of a guy coming in as the number one pick.
1: And I want to get back to that in a minute on the, the difference between sort of mid to late lottery. Cause I do think you're onto something there, but, but to what you said a second before about, um, the difference between the number one pick and some of these other guys. I I think that a a really interesting draft to look at is 2018, where you had DeAndre Ayton go one, Marvin Bagley two, (laughs) Luka Doncic three, Jaron Jackson four, Trey Young five, and a couple more bigs, Muhammad Bamba, Wendell Carter. I think part of what we may be seeing in these recent drafts, and that one is a great example, is the game has gone through such a change in the last few years, Right to the the way the big man is deployed now is so different from any time in NBA history. And I'm not sure the draft caught up to the devaluing of big men as quickly as the way the game actually played caught up to that. So you still kind of looked at a a guy like a Bagley, right, who had post-up skills and and scoring skills and in ways that translated to maybe the way the game was played five, 10 years ago, but not to the way the NBA is played right now. And then the and whereas you kind of looked at a Luca and you felt well it's not as safe for whatever reason right instead of saying well, wait a minute why am I taking a well DeAndre into a double double machine so yeah who cares the the upside used to be people used to think the upside was the, in the six eleven multi talented guy right the upside now may be in the wing who you don't quite know as much about and 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 I think we're we're only you know. E- I was going to say we're only starting to see it because we saw it last year with Cade Huntingham and Jalen Green going ahead of an Evan Mobley. Um, but the top of this year's draft board is is three guys who are, are 6'10 or bigger. So we still may be undervaluing the Trey Youngs of the world come draft time.
2: Something you've pointed out, what both of you have talked about is how if you wait long enough to be able to categorize players as busts, right? So not taking anybody in the past three years, but a huge proportion of busts are actually big men as opposed to guards. And I always wonder, when you hear GMs or fans talk about unicorns, where you know there's this, this huge temptation to find big men who can move fast, shoot great, right? Do it all at a huge size. Would you rather have a unicorn? Would you rather have a player coming out of college who people say about him, he does things no one else would ever has ever been able to do? Or would you rather actually have someone who's projectable but just projectable to be very, very good. When I hear unicorn, when I hear nobody's ever done this the way this kid's going to do this, I get very concerned because what that means is that frame, that body may not actually be able to act in that way at this level of physical competition. That's really something to worry about. And every time guys fall in love with big men who supposedly can do things that big men have never been able to do, that's a pretty good bet. Big men will continue to not be able to do that over a sustained period of
1: time. Well, and I'll give you some, uh, I'll give you a current example. It's a little bit of playing devil's advocate, but look at Paolo Bancaro. Okay, um, obviously I've seen a lot of him. Um, there are flaws in his game. I, I watch him, and he's not always super switchable on defense. Um, he takes some forced long twos. He's better at catch and shoot threes, even though he likes to try to create off the dribble. He's got a great advanced post-up game for his age, but the NBA doesn't run a lot of straight post-ups. So it's 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 easy to see some of the potential in a 6'10 guy who can shoot the way he is when he's open and and make some of the moves he can make. But I also kind of worry is he the type of guy who's going to get hunted on defense and played off the floor in key situations because he's not a rim protector either. So is he a he's not really a five, but he's not really a four in some of the small ball NBA. So you can start to envision certain situations where he doesn't maybe mesh fully with the modern NBA, whereas like a guard like a Jaden Ivey, who you can just see stepping in right away and being a creator off the dribble and so forth. He seems more modern NBA than any of those bigs.
2: Were you guys excited without reservations like that about Zion and it's just bad luck with injuries? Or were you concerned even him coming into the league that Is going to be tough.
1: No, my only concern was Zion was, and we've seen it when he's been healthy. My only concern was injuries because he, I actually thought he could do a whole bunch of Draymond type of stuff, even if he never became a great scorer. Mm -hmm. And he's already shown he can score too. So he's so unusual and he does the things that we're talking about. He can switch on defense. He can play small ball five. He can guard multiple positions. So I didn't have that fear with him.
0: I also thought that Zion had a lot more potential just as like his steal rate, um, his, his blocking ability. I just thought he had a lot more potential defensively, but the concern with him is that he'd be so infatuated with the dunking and the scoring that he just wouldn't really care about the defense because the rest of the game is so easy to him. Right. Um, and so I, I think, you know, he has been labeled a bust, I think so far in terms of his ability to stay on the floor, but I don't think there's any argument. That if he's healthy, he is not a bust, right? So it's hard when you build these models to distinguish between a player like um, Greg Oden, who when he was healthy was as as advertised, right? An amazing defensive anchor and, and a bucket, right? Um, and Zion Williamson. But the thing is... Like with Markel Foltz, you brought him up like he hasn't been considered an all star player, or even considered projected to be an all star player, even when he is healthy. Yes, he's been injured and in some very mysterious injuries. But I do think that his encore play has actually been uh, less encouraging um, than you think uh, when he has been on the floor. He's had some moments, but to put it to, all together, like I think it's I think it's we're ready to now say that Markel Fultz was a bust from the expectation standpoint, putting the injuries aside.
2: I didn't bring my cowbell. Because I didn't think that someone was going to mention Greg Oden this early. Have you, Tom, experienced the Jordan impassioned defense of selecting Greg Oden in the draft?
0: It's a whole soapbox thing. I feel like I should be ringing a bell. I mean, I'd love to hear it. <laughs> but like hindsight is twenty twenty, right? It's not crazy. I think we tend to overstate our ability to predict injury after it happens and be like, well, Zion Williamson was obviously going to get injured. But he also, his body changed, right? He stopped taking care of his body. He put on a lot of weight. And like that stuff wasn't as much of a concern at Duke, right? I mean, look at, look at Zion's body at Duke. It was, in, it was chiseled. It was so different than what we're accustomed to now.
1: Because Duke gets the most out of their players. That's right. That's what you're trying to say. Ah, I walked into that one. In
2: this case, literally, they get the most pounds off of Zion. Was-
1: look, I know Peter wants me to rant about Greg Oden, and I'm not going to. But again- if you go back and watch the national championship game his freshman year, when he was going single handedly up against both Al Horford and Joakim Noah, and watch what he did against them in a loss, but you can't watch that guy play and not realize how great a player he would have been if he'd been able to stay healthy. And it's really a shame that his career went the way it did, that his body couldn't hold up, because he would have been an all time great. I'm 100% convinced.
0: Remember the best vacation you've ever taken? Make your next one even better with Get Your Guide. With Get Your Guide, you can book over 100,000 unforgettable experiences in the U.S. and around the world. Want to see the Grand Canyon from a helicopter? They got you. Watching a wrestling match in Mexico City? No problem. Or how about a guided tour of Rome's ancient ruins? Wherever you're going, whatever you're into, book your next travel experience at GetYourGuide.com. According to this draft initiative study, there have been 60 schools since 1989 that have drafted at least or seen at least 10 of its players go into the draft. The Gonzaga Bulldogs come in at, in terms of their overperforming or underperforming draft slot, Gonzaga is at 38 Of that 60, and Duke is at 37. Do you guys want to know that in this iteration who number one is in terms of output versus their draft slot? Who overperforms or outperforms, exceeds expectations?
1: I'm pretty sure it was Tufts. Tufts, right?
2: Jordan, we should just start naming other Carolina schools. I'll guess UNC Charlotte. Elon.
1: Davidson. What is UNC Asheville?
0: Those are all incorrect. Do you want to know which one it is correct? Harvard. It's Wake Forest. Winston-Salem, North Carolina, 11 picks. They've outperformed their expectations by an average of 2.3 wins
1: per pick per year. Wait, is that right? Wake Forest has only produced 11 drafted players since 1989.
0: Let's not focus on the 11, okay? Okay. <laughs>
2: Siani Chambers never made it to the NBA. The Wake
0: Forest bias in the other direction. Teams don't want to draft the Wake Forest guy for whatever reason. It hurt Ish Smith, and look where he is. He's still in the league, okay? He was undrafted, and now he's better than – Are you claiming there's an anti-Wake Forest conspiracy at the NBA draft? Look at Alondis Williams. He wins player of the year for the (laughs) ACC, and he's not on anyone's draft board. If he gets drafted, I will be thrilled, but he's definitely not going to be drafted in the first round. The ACC player of the year, come on now. Alondis Williams, Jake LaRavia, give him a lottery pick. Just Look, John Collins should have been a lottery pick. He went to 19, and look at him. He's a great NBA player, borderline all-star at 19.
1: Great. Oh, yeah. Superstar.
0: Number one on the list in the most, uh, the best-performing college collegiates, alumni, uh, number one is Wake Forest. Number two is Marquette. So you got Jimmy Butler. You got uh, Jake Crowder.
1: Yeah, I was gonna ask how much of that is just Wade and Butler.
0: There's more than them. <laughs> well, how much does it? How much does it have to be? That's pretty good.
1: Well, right there. I'm saying if you only produce like five pros, right, and two of them are. What's the top
2: program with let's say? 20 or more drafts. 12. I was going to say 12 or more.
1: Oh, Didn't, why?
0: Just to get rid of Wake Forest? That's, <laughs> oh, that's oh, where the bar wow, is. Being wow. Drawn? Wow.
2: What coincidence. Wow. Selective
0: endpoints. I'm sorry. Yeah, a dozen, a dozen or more. It sounds fair. Okay. So if you look at, let's say, <laughs> 20 or more, Kentucky is number one. They get 0. 0.4 wins per pick per year um, above expected. And then right behind them is Texas. So KD is not the only one, but there's a bunch of UT Austin,
1: right? Do you guys actually think there's anything to where you went to school in terms of pro production, especially, especially because we're now looking at an over 30 year sample of multiple coaches?
0: Oh wow, the Duke fan is a skeptic about the college analysis. How about that? How fitting? How convenient that you want to
1: downplay. Look, I'm keeping my third eye open on this one. Okay. Well, to
0: answer the question, to answer the
2: who brings up the rear, who's last? Is there anything to the the college that has produced players who've performed below, not just not talented, but Below expectations
0: by the most? Syracuse. And I think there's a a good reason why. That system at Syracuse with Bayheim does not produce NBA players. They don't. And I think a lot of it has to do defense. Um, like there's Carmelo Anthony, okay. Yeah, but look at the list of Syracuse players in the league and they flame out. A lot of them are more Hakeem Work than Carmelo Anthony.
2: This is why year after year after year after we fall in love with the giant killer teams playing. we still waiting
1: for John Willis to John Wallace to break out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's coming.
2: Two years two years later, the players who play on really interesting systems are all in Italy or Turkey, you know?
1: But guys, I'm I'm less interested in where someone went to school. Of course and, you are, and more interested in in the quality and caliber of, of guys making the decisions in the league of general managers. I, like, I of, of all the things you've been able to do in, in crunching this, these numbers, Tom, I love being able to see over the years, who's consistently gotten more or less value out of their draft slots than, than expected.
0: Yeah. So in this first iteration, we did a whole article about how Isaiah Thomas was um, the best at, drafting talent. Um, and it was not a great time to be saying that Isaiah Thomas is a genius. Uh, when we first, what was it? 20, 2009. 2009
1: you kind of made your editor sick assigning that one. If I, if I remember correctly. <laughs> Come on,
2: who were Isaiah's first three first round picks? It was Stoudemire, right? Uh, Marcus, Marcus Canby and Tracy McGrady. And that was in his first GM job that he got after Retiring. That's pretty good. And I always thought as a Knicks fan, I thought that Isaiah actually had a really keener than we all appreciated eye for talent. He just – so like there was the one year he drafted Channing Fry and David Lee, right? Um, but he also always thought that he was this guy who could turn around anybody, any bad case – You know, no matter why they were a bad case, whether it was injuries or off the court stuff or whatever, he thought he could get them cheap, bring them in and by force of his own personality, reclaim them. That part didn't really ever work out at all, but he was a good drafter, right?
0: He was a great drafter. And you you mentioned a lot of them there. And I think people mistake, you know, all the other stuff that Isaiah Thomas did as the, (laughs) as the architect of that New York franchise. Um, So I think it is important to note that like, Isaiah Thomas, still very much high on this list. He is not number one on the list for the best at the draft night um, among executives or top decision makers. Jordan, you went through and labeled, you helped me out here, the top decision maker. And it's, sometimes it's, you know, is it RC Buford or is it Greg Popovich? But Greg Popovich comes out on top.
1: And what's interesting is Pop, Pop comes out on top. And-, and RC still has a positive. He's I think he's 33rd. Or 32nd, but still like his picks have exceeded value as well. Even, um, you know, whatever you think of whether Pop is the man in charge or not.
0: Right. So Pop, I mean, his hits, obviously you start with Tim Duncan at number one. Um, He exceeded the value of a typical number one pick, obviously being a top 10 player all time. Um, and he went to Wake Forest. That helps. The other thing, the other thing he did was he found diamonds in the rough. So it's not just the Tim Duncan. It's it's the fact that he was able to find Luis Scola in the second round and Manu Ginobili and Tony Parker as late as he did. Kawhi counted for RC, right? That's correct. So I mean, the Spurs as a franchise have exceeded value in the draft way more than anybody else in this study, which makes sense. If you're drafting at 30 every year, of course, you have a higher a, bit, a higher upside, right? It's, right? it's harder to screw up a 30 pick. It's much easier to screw up a number one pick if you're the Sacramento Kings and always picking in the top five. So,
1: Well, that's why I'm so interested in the, who's number two right now, in terms of a guy who had a bunch of lottery picks and is still in the league. It's Zach Kleiman from Memphis, who has absolutely built this team through the draft.
0: He's been so good. So good. He's been really good. I mean, Desmond Bain there at the end of the first round, even that alone, the fact that he had a guy that good 3 and D player at that slot is incredible, but he has a, a bunch of other hits as well. Um, he has he has seven picks in this study, and I think if we want to keep it to a threshold of 10 or more, here's a, some other names. We got Pop. We got Isaiah Thomas. Number three, I think I have uh, Masai Ujiri. Four... Paxson and then five Gar Foreman. Hear that Bulls fans? Yeah. Garch. Yeah, they, they do really good at the draft. Again, Isaiah Thomas corollary, really good at the draft and kind of bungled everything after that. Um, but Masayu Jiri, is that a, is that a surprise at all? No. He's been he's been hitting home runs uh for the Toronto Raptors, but even before that with the with the Denver Nuggets. Jerry West right there too, yeah. right? Yep, 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 yep. I mean Jerry West, so many home runs there, but on a per pick value, I think it, it's pop then Isaiah, then Messiah, and Pax and Garth.
2: Yeah, there's more upside to any given number 30 pick than to a number one pick. But when you put together a list like this, it's very hard to stay at the bottom of this kind of, any statistical list like this for a long time <laughs> because you wouldn't keep your job, right? Except if your name is Elgin Baylor. <laughs> I, I, I I don't want to be negative. Baylor's one of the greatest players in league history. We We all know that. I'm not going to talk about how many years Elgin Baylor took paychecks from Donald Sterling and then turned around and sued him 20 plus years later. Leave that for another time. I just want to point out that Elgin Baylor had 43 draft picks in this study. The guy right above him, Jerry Reynolds, had 14. The guy right below him, ML Carr, had six. Yet somehow Elgin Baylor's draft picks produced about 0.7 wins less than expected Every year, year after year, every pick, pick after pick. Elgin Baylor the guy who drafted Danny Ferry, number two overall, who drafted Michael Aluakandi, number one overall, who drafted Darius Miles and was it King Dooling with top 10 picks one year. And this is my favorite. I wrote this down so I wouldn't misquote him. When he drafted 1988, Danny Manning, number one. Unfortunate injuries there. Charles Smith, number three and Gary Grant, number 15, Elgin Baylor said, I think this is the best draft any team has ever come up with in history. <laughs> so props to Elgin Baylor, by far the worst record of anybody with a dozen or more picks, and he had
0: 43 of them. Shouts to Don Sterling for that. Yeah, Elgin Baylor, 15 lottery picks, and only one of them became an all-star. Do you want to know who that all-star was? Chris Kamen. <laughs> oh, that's a great stat. <laughs> Come on. If you have 15 swings at the at the bat and you only produce your best player is Chris Kamen. I mean, look, he did get Lamar Odom, um, who I guess didn't technically, uh, not an all-star, really good NBA player, of course. But uh, the fact that you had 15 swings in the lottery and you only got one all-star over those years is insane.
2: I wonder if any of Elgin Baylor's fifteen lottery picks ever got a single MVP vote.
0: It's a great question.
2: I wonder if any of them. I wonder if I don't think I don't. I'm not sure. I don't think if Odom did. I should go look up. I did a big story on Donald Sterling once, and um, he would actually hold parties, white parties, like everyone dressed like Gatsby, every year on lottery day because the Clippers were always in the lottery. <laughs> <laughs> one of the guests told me that there was one year where they were all looking to see where the Clippers were going to get, you know, and when they didn't get the number one pick, that guest and a few other people moved away from the TV to the window and started talking about whether Pia Zadora's car was double parked, because Donald Sterling was the king of inviting C-list celebrities over every year just to see if they'd get the number one pick, because they were always in the lottery. Can you imagine what it was like to be Elgin Baylor in those years, working working for
0: that guy? Well... He is not even the worst per pick in my study. Think about this. David Kahn. Yeah. uh 11 picks. Here's one for David Kahn. Expected to get a 1.7 win player on average, and he ended up getting a 0.8 win player. So it's a negative about a win per year per uh, draft pick. David Kahn, who could forget the David Kahn era in Minnesota, passing on Steph Curry not once but twice and getting uh, Johnny Flynn instead.
2: Who adds to the the Syracuse underperformance record, by the way, Johnny Flynn.
1: So let me ask you guys this. So we were talking about this earlier, right, when it came to – I mentioned we'd come back to Donovan Mitchell and Bam Adebayo. But you you see these GMs drafting players, and I, I keep wondering how much of it is their ability to spot talent which is how much of it is having a really good organization to develop that talent. So, if someone other than Pat Riley or Dennis Lindsay and Quinn Snyder had drafted Bam Adebayo and Donovan Mitchell respectively, would they be what they are now? If they conversely, if Pat Riley had drafted Marvin Bagley, would he be a better player than he is now? If if Bam Adebayo had go to Sacramento, had gone to Goad, had gone to Sacramento, would he be Uh, just a a lesser version of who he is. How how much of that is a factor in how we evaluate these guys and what their jobs are?
0: 100%. I mean, like it's a great point. If, if Mando Ginobili and Tony Parker and Luis Scola go play for, um, for, for Sacramento. Sacramento is what I was
2: thinking too. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Like (laughs) what happens? Right. And speaking of Sacramento, we got Jerry Reynolds at number three and the worst performing executives and Vladi Divac at number four. Uh, Pete, Babcock rounding out a number five.
2: That's quite a fun little group right there at the bottom of the list. That's fairly amazing.
0: I think a lot of it is environment, right? Kawhi Leonard, if he goes to Indiana instead of San Antonio, is he Kawhi Leonard? I mean, we can go on down the line on all these examples of like, it's not as much the talent as it is the actual organization cultivating that talent. Totally true. Um, I think that's, that's a, one, a really big piece of this puzzle and, you know, um Pat Riley like hates the draft. Like if you look at the way he's gotten rid of draft picks in trades to get big time players like Jimmy Butler or um uh, uh Precious Achua, He got Precious Achua and then shipped him away to Toronto for uh for Kyle Lowry almost immediately, right? Um he has only had six first round picks in like 13 years at the helm. Six. Bam Adebayo was one of them. That's a hit. Tyler Hero, another hit. Um, He continues to really do well in the draft, but can you be that good in the draft if you don't have a great organization to cultivate Tyler Hero and Bam Adebayo? So it is kind of this self-fulfilling prophecy is that the the Miami Heat are really good at the draft because they are really good at all the other things outside of the draft.
2: And that is reflected, right, in non-drafted players switching franchises. There are teams that players go to where they become better. They're developed better. They fit part of a system. That's clearly true about Miami. It was true about San Antonio, right? I mean, Hassan Whiteside or whoever. I mean, there are places where you know players who could get lost somewhere else will start to prosper. That happens even for players later in their careers. Not as often and not as dramatically, but We've seen environmental changes produce great changes in players' careers, plus and minus, right?
1: Tom, you
0: were talking about that earlier with Miami, Max Struess, and Tunkin' Robinson. Yep. I mean, we go with Tyler Johnson, Hassan Whiteside, James Johnson, Dion Waiters, like all these players that they rehabilitated to become, you know, 10 million, 20 million, 30 million type players. And, you know, James Johnson, he succeeds wherever he goes because he went to a great school. But uh, most of these other players <laughs> that don't have that leg up because of their alma mater, uh, like James Johnson. Um, I mean, who's to say Jeff Teague, if he had gone anywhere else, he would have been better, but he went to Wake and ended up being an all-star. Chris Paul, top
2: shelf Paul of Famer, no matter where he happened to bring his talents, right? Yeah.
0: Yeah. So when I look <laughs> at this, it's nature versus nurture. I mean, there's thousands of books written on what is, how much do we owe genetics versus the environment? And the same is, is certainly true for, for NBA players. Um, one thing I wanted to hit on though, is the the emphasis about age at this time in the draft, uh, Peter Jordan, we hear all about uh, upside and this kid might not be, polished but he's raw he's a raw talent he's 18 he's 19 years old and the upside is tremendous for these players jay billis has made a career being really really smart he's a really smart duke guy as well but he comically talks about wingspan and upside and all these things about like potential and i think sometimes we get over obsessed or just over emphasis about potential and yet the data He's really interesting on this. On average, younger lottery picks, 18-year-olds and 19-year-olds, far outperform expectations where they were picked in the draft, much more than their older peers. However, more recently, Jordan, seniors are having a comeback here.
1: I've been interested in, as we've been studying this, this information, I, I wish I knew why. I have some theories, but uh, your numbers certainly show that, especially later in the draft, where the the quest for ceiling isn't maybe as high, that you can do very well for yourself by targeting an experienced guy to come in and fill a role right away.
0: Herb Jones being the glowing example yep. of this, our guy Herb, the SEC Player of the Year, a senior coming out of Alabama, and still fell to the second round, the 35th pick by the New Orleans Pelicans. I think we're underrating seniors. I think it's fallen so far on the that end of the spectrum that we focus so much about young talent and youth and raw talent that we forget about like the Jalen Brunson's in the world, the older players coming in from established programs like Villanova. And I'm going to say oh my it, God. Alondis Williams dominating the ACC <laughs> should probably count for something. And we just saw Herb Jones dominate the SEC last year and fell to the second round. And I feel like being a senior and dominating at a higher age is almost a negative rather than a positive. And so I think there's value there. There's some in market inefficiency there, a little bit, with seniors who dominate at the college level and are almost, that's almost like a, a flaw in their profile, is that they're too old. Jordan's term is good. but did right. you say? The Hunt for Ceiling, The Search for Ceiling?
1: It's the next uh, Star Trek movie. Yes, The Quest for Ceiling.
2: <laughs> the quest, quest for Ceiling. Yeah, it's almost like. Uh, if they've seen you and you're really good and you're beyond 19 years old, well, it's like almost like they've been there, done that. It's, it's, it's an odd phenomenon, isn't it? When excellence in performance is measured as a negative because it's negative because there's there's less potential as opposed to potential that's already been realized, which makes me wonder if it's actually a, a, long, a something of a long-term trend moving back the other way towards appreciating older players is going to kick in sometime soon, not just a cyclical thing.
1: And yet, if you look at the mock drafts heading into Thursday, Thursday, the only um, senior expected to go in the lottery is Sakai Abaji from Kansas. Um, you know, it's projected to go around the 10 mark. Otherwise, it's a bunch of freshmen, freshmen and sophomores. You know, I think juniors are getting overlooked too. And when I watch the NBA, and I love you know, versatile, switchy defenders who can guard multiple positions, there's one guy who comes to mind immediately who's available in this draft. That's right, Peter Keating. Wendell <laughs> Moore. From Duke University. Oh. oh my goodness. Looking like he might go top of the second round. Uh, you know, again, being... And he's actually young for a junior. He's he's really the only the age of a sophomore. You get all the experience and none of the age. Feels like a heat pick to me.
0: Yeah, I guess I can give you some Duke talk here.
2: You think that is related to the flattening of the draft value curve? That if things... Are less predictable and you're going with younger players who are more boom bust at the top of the draft. Relatively sure things are going to be found later in the draft, even maybe the middle of the first round. Should we be paying a lot more attention to smart teams in the second round? It feels like it.
1: Well, the other thing too is bigs tend to leave or, or used to tend to leave earlier. Now everybody lives, right? But if bigs are devalued in the modern game and guards are staying a little bit longer in school, then it's it's a confluence of things. Where right those those guys should uh, perform their draft slot by even more because of the way the game has changed. Right? Can we combine two points into a grand unified theory? Yeah, there's a,
2: there's a grand unified theory bubbling out of this whole mix. Yes.
0: Well, I think also throwing the fact that if you're a GM and on draft night you have the opportunity to get a 22 year old or a 19 year old, what does the 19 year old offer you that a 22 year old doesn't? More years. More years. And so I think there's a tendency for executives to pick the younger, unproven talent to almost buy you a couple more years just to see that through. Whereas if you get a 22-year-old and he doesn't perform well in year one, it almost is like, why did we just burn uh, a pick on this guy when he could have... You could have gotten this 19-year-old, right? And and I think for GMs, it almost gives you a longer leash on your job, a little bit more security. If you go for the younger guy, it's almost counterintuitive that going for the riskier pick actually gives you more of a longer window. More time for anybody to prove you wrong, basically, right? Yeah. The player or your, or your bosses. Right, right. So, like, listen to this list of seniors that went in the draft. CJ McCollum, Malcolm Brogdon, Herb Jones, Desmond Bain, Dwight Powell, Draymond Green, Josh Richardson. Matisse Tybal. Tom,
1: I think you skipped over a name when you're sorting by windshares shares there. Of seniors, um, uh, the, the, who are the most effective of this era? Can you
0: rewind for a second? Oh, you know what? One that did not perform very well up to expectation. I guess a little bit is Grace and Allen at twenty-one. But no, um, no, no.
1: Look higher on your chart.
0: No, I'm just looking. Oh, oh Miles Plumley. Look at Miles uh, Plumley at minus. No,
1: I don't. It wasn't Miles Plumley. Wait, what? No, um, ahead of CJ no. McCollum. In fact, in average win shares, right? That'd be Mason Plumley. Yeah.
0: I mean. Wow.
1: Did you stay up at night highlighting
2: the Duke players' spreadsheet lines with special colors?
1: Analytics love Mason Plumley. And so do I.
0: Yeah, Mason Plumley is getting that kind of value at 22. The analytics love Mason Plumley, but I, I have to look back into the data. How is that possible that like advanced metrics point to Mason Plumley being better than CJ McCollum, some of these things? Anyway, I'm just going to chalk that up to a, a glitch or a clerical error in the <laughs> database and all analytics across the world. Glitch. It does make me think that seniors on average, yes, they're getting picked later and later in the draft. And you're seeing it in this year's draft is that, like you said, almost no seniors to be found on the big boards. I think there's value there. And I think smart GMs are going to be able to, to find to mine that data and say like Malcolm Brogdon might be 27 years old and uh, Buddy Heald might be 27 years old, might be 28 years old coming out of the draft. But like, can he play basketball? Is he really good at basketball? Yeah. All right, then let's go get that guy. I think that conversation has been swaying too far in the, uh, yeah, but he's 23.
1: I'm also really interested in how the transfer portal is going to change that too because as guys switch schools more often, maybe you get a different read on them. Maybe they develop differently in a different system. So maybe you do have some older players who suddenly emerge because they've, they're on their second or in some cases third school. Mm. Someone's brought something new out of them. Let me ask you
2: about something else that can make the difference in deciding who to pick. Tom, you've basically found that the rookie salary curve more or less follows the performance curve, like the fall off after the first pick, right? Because in the NFL, the performance of players after the top pick falls off at a much shallower rate mm. than other sports and then most people in the NFL realized. So when they built rookie contracts into labor agreements, the amount that you had to pay players beyond number one fell very steeply, right? steeper than the actual value of the players so it was actually much more valuable to pick like outright the ninth or especially in a league with a cap a harder cap than the nba it was teams picking 10th or 15th were making off much better because they were getting 90 or 80 or 70 percent of the value of the top pick at something like 20% of the cost and if you picked number 1 you picked a quarterback and gave him a guaranteed quarterback uh, you know guaranteed contract for four or five years and then that then that guy busted it would hurt you really bad but in this case it seems like the two curves follow each other more more closely
0: Yeah, they mirror each other. They're in parallel um, the actual costs that you're paying out in salary and actually the performance that you're getting. So they did a really good job of mirroring the that that curve. I think um, I think for me, uh, I think the, the larger question is like second round picks and the fact that they're not guaranteed contracts and you can have a little bit more team friendly. End of first round versus the beginning of the second round. I think you'd see like, hey, if I can get the same player but have a much more team-friendly contract on the back end, I'd rather be picking at 34 than at you know 28. Um, so that's really where I think the inefficiencies lie. And you know, we we keep talking about how like it is a crapshoot in the draft, but in the last ten drafts, like the nut the one through five picks, one through five in the last ten drafts have. Per- have yielded 840 wins compared to six through 10 it's 720 compared to 11 and 15 it's down to 700 and then 16 through 20 it's 350 so you see the drop off there after the lottery in recent years though the lottery has been more of a crapshoot and as the sample size expands um it does the cream starts to rise to the top but i do think it's something to monitor going forward it, are we just getting worse at the draft? Are we figuring out that like the, the teams that are picking the back half of the lottery are actually in a really good position to find talent because we're, we just overthink the top five picks and that we're not as good as we think either developing that top end talent or identifying that top end talent. So we'll see. Hopefully Zion Williamson does get healthier and he improves that number one pick performance in the draft, but I just don't have as much confidence about Markel no need to fear Quaver. underdog is here to save her. Speaking of Zion Williamson, I do believe and I hate to say this because he's a dookie, I do believe that we should be talking NBA futures here. Now that the, the champion has been crowned, the Golden State Warriors are officially the 2022 NBA Finals champions. Um, and I do believe we were pumping them up on this very podcast right before the postseason run as, as a team that should be the favorite. And they weren't the favorite going into the postseason. Somehow the Brooklyn Nets were still. But Jordan... I think I already know where you're going with this because of how much Duke is being infiltrated in that new Orleans franchise with Trajan Langdon calling the shots there at GM. And then you have Brandon Ingram and, uh, and Zion Williamson, but I am looking at these DraftKings futures odds on the 2023 NBA champion. And I'm kind of stunned at how far down the new Orleans Pelicans are. And it seems to me that you even got them at a better price.
1: That's right. I, the, first of all, this is a great time to grab a couple of futures, um, especially if you have a sense for how you think the draft and free agency are going to go. And I do think the league is more wide open in general, That for a, a, more than we've seen in the past for a team to make a quick rise. We saw it with Phoenix two years ago. We saw Golden State return, obviously, with injuries this year. Uh, I love the Pelicans. We saw what they could be in peak form without Zion with the way they scared the Suns in the first round Now picture adding, hopefully, a healthy Zion to that team with Brandon Ingram, C.J. McCollum, Herb Jones. By the way, do we have to explain what Herb Jones is? No, but you do have to—I wanted to bring this up before. Not that this has anything
2: to do with the Pelicans, but you do have to pronounce Desmond Bain's name correctly. It's Desmond
1: Bain and Herb Jones. Thank you, Peter. Found Shoeness, Trey Murphy, Jose Alvarado. On and on and on. This this group looked fantastic, and Zion is just a perfect complementary piece. Not even better than a complementary piece, but in terms of what they did well, he fits in beautifully. Is there any reason why this team can't win ten more games next year? Can't challenge if they could take the Suns to the limit. This year, why can't they challenge anyone in the playoffs next year? So I believe they are about plus 4,000 right now. I grabbed them a few weeks ago at plus 6,000. I think hmm. it's a great bet if you're into sort of buying a lottery ticket for for the NBA.
0: I'm with you on that.
1: I like the pick, yeah.
0: I'm kind of upset that you got that, and so I now I have to pick my other team. Yeah.
1: But I love that, that value play. I mean,
0: that's a long shot, right? They're... Um, if you're at looking at plus 4,000 on the odds, I think that's going to be like what 20th or 15th there, best odds in the NBA at winning the championship. So that's certainly an underdog and we love underdogs on this podcast. That's why we call it the underdogs podcast. And I actually have a longer long shot. Oh, well, let's go. The Atlanta Hawks. Hmm.
1: <laughs> little bounce back.
0: You hear that? Who would win in a fight? A Hawk or a Pelican?
1: hawk?
0: Well,
2: yeah, unless the pelican just scoops them up. A hawk could fit inside the pelican's big No, I can't I can't construct that scenario. The the hawk the hawk would rip him to shreds, sadly.
0: I don't know, man. If you look up YouTube videos of pelicans, they are vicious. They just gobble people up and swallow them down and it just is scary what they can do. Pelicans gobble people up? Uh, yeah. I mean, people- <laughs> Wait a minute. Only if they're named Zion. <laughs> was there a
2: trend of, of vicious pelican
1: attacks that I haven't been paying attention to?
2: Tom must have taken some strong
0: stuff the last time he was in New Orleans.
1: Pelicans are eating people.
0: <laughs> hey, pelicans are literally eating people <laughs> everywhere, no matter where you look. I got to find that YouTube video. <laughs> so I picked the Hawks. Okay, bringing this back. The Hawks, plus 6,500, <laughs> 65 to 1 odds, winning the title. Do I think they're going to win the title next year? No. Do I think that's great value? Yeah. And here's why. They've got the ability. We saw it two years ago. They beat the Philadelphia 76ers. They got to the conference finals. And then they regressed last year. Trey Young looked abysmal against the Miami Heat in the first round this year. It was bad. But I do think that they are a trade suitor or a potential landing spot for Rudy Gobert. And he gets played off the floor in the postseason every year. We've only seen it with one coach and Quinn Snyder and I'm not going to go on a Duke rant here. I'm just saying I'd like to see Rudy Gobert in a different system with a different makeup roster makeup with Trey young. Um, I would be fascinated to see that team if they swing a deal, let's say John Collins and Clint Capella for Rudy Gobert. We know that the Utah Jazz are itching to make some changes here. They already did it with the head coach. I see the potential for them to make a big major move this offseason to try to get back into the title picture with Trey Young. And I think if they get Rudy Gobert, do they make, does that make them like an instant title contender? I don't know. But if they, say, get another wing defender, which is more than the Utah Jazz had last year, they had zero wing defenders. Um, you get DeAndre Hunter and you get... Um, like a Lou Dort, let's say, if they able to snag Lou Dort from from uh, Oklahoma City, you get two really good on ball defenders on the wing, plus Trey Young, plus um, Onyeko Okongwu, who's a great baby Bam. I love a uh, Okongwu. I think that has a really high upside team, and they're
1: my pick. That's what I was going to ask you. Is though, is is Rudy Gobert the right finishing piece for that team? Because I look at a Capella-Okongwu combination is just fine at, at the five in, in, in today's NBA. I love DeAndre Hunter. I'm wondering if they can consolidate some of those wings, Bogdanovich, Kevin Herter, Collins at the four, and maybe try to upgrade at maybe the two or the four. And that might have more impact on their team than a Gobert.
2: Just to underscore Jordan's point, it wasn't like Atlanta— played like Portland or Orlando last year. Atlanta, in a year where all their fans treated it as a disastrous collapse season, won one fewer game than the Brooklyn Nets. They won 43 games last year. They're not that far away from competing to go on a deep playoff run in the Eastern Conference,
0: right? I mean, they're already pretty good. Yeah, they at least made the playoffs, which is more than you could say for the Lakers, and the Lakers are higher up on this.
2: The Lakers are really—what are the Lakers at? The Lakers are at plus
0: 1,600, isn't that? That's like the same as Miami, right? That's a little crazy. DraftKings is saying that there's three tiers. The, the real contender tier is Golden State, Clippers, Boston, Brooklyn, Milwaukee, and Phoenix. Okay, then there's the second tier— which might be like one piece away, Philadelphia, Denver, Memphis, Dallas, Miami, and the Lakers. And then the tier three, which is where New Orleans and Atlanta are. It's New Orleans, Atlanta, Minnesota, Toronto, Chicago, and Utah. So I know this is the underdogs podcast. And I know Peter, you always go for the Trevor Rogers of the world. (laughs) What is your pick for long shot title favorite?
2: No, you're right. There's no one between that plus 1600 level and that like plus 5,500 level like Chicago and Toronto, except for a few teams. The Pelicans are one of them. Another one of them, which is a better team than anybody realizes, even though they were really damn good last year, is the Utah Jazz. Ooh. I don't know that Rudy Gobert is going anywhere. They got rid of the coach and Rudy Gobert is already playing with someone who can score like Trey Young and Donovan Mitchell. And Donovan Mitchell's- 25. He doesn't want to play with Rudy Gobert.
0: That's a big problem.
2: What if they hire a coach he likes?
0: It's not about the coach.
2: All right. well listen, that's good because they don't have a coach. They have no draft picks and if they use all their exceptions and guarantee all the contracts that they want, they'll have a luxury tax payment of $70 million but I don't actually think that's necessarily going to happen. Here's a couple of things you have to realize about Utah.
1: Tell us what we need to know about Utah. They don't
2: have a coach, okay? It has mountains. Looking at the points scored and the points they allowed, they were extraordinarily unlucky last year even though they won 49 games you got to look at utah and see a 55-56 win team when you look at them and they're very you know they're a very deliberate organization one of the most in all of sports they're going to interview 20 or 25
0: people before they hire a head coach <laughs> they really literally are and i don't think they want to trade mitchell or agents want 20 names out
1: there i saw okay. a team that yeah. had a lack of playmakers down the stretch in playoff games and a real difficulty keeping one of their two most important players on the floor. That's what I see as the issue. Go
2: Bears miss like a dozen games a year each of the no, three. No, no,
1: not due to injuries, due to the defensive scheming.
2: Well, like I said, they got rid of the Duke guy. And they do need a better backup center. And they do need a wing defender, right? But Bogdanovich's contract is actually the one that's expiring. What if they trade him, say, 15 or 20 million bucks and get back a good wing defender? And here's another thing. They're a great shooting team but mostly from inside.
0: They took the second most threes per game in the league last year, but they only hit 36% of them. Well, two years ago, they were the number one team in the Western Conference. We already know that they have the ability to win games in the regular season, but this isn't the number one seed. But what if retooling means instead of getting rid of
2: Mitchell and Gobert, what if it means they get rid of Bogdanovich and bring back, let's just say a three-point shooter and a wing defender? What if they bring back Doug McDermott and then somebody who can play a little defense? So, I don't know, something like that. Something that improves their outside shooting without sacrificing like two all NBA level players. At four th- plus 4,000, that's like a 2.5% chance of winning the title. I think there's a better than 2.5% chance that things break right for them. I'll also say one other thing. Like, talk about the kind of players that have been undervalued in the draft. The, j- <laughs> the Jazz have no draft picks. So in their pre draft workouts, they're bringing in guys who like are high-level college senior type, giant killer type players
0: who may not actually get drafted. This is the only reason why you're picking them is because you recognize who they're bringing in for pre-draft workouts.
1: That's exactly right. Right, because I love the workout guys. He's so transparent. They
2: brought in Colin Gillespie from uh, Villanova. Oh they brought in Tommy Cousy from uh, St. Mary's. They brought in Josh Minot from Memphis, the freshman. I love all these guys they're bringing in as workout guys. What if one of them can shoot threes or what if one of them can play some- (laughs) What (laughs) is happening right now? What if one of them can just play some defense on the perimeter? I
1: don't think- What if? He
0: He recognized a name in their pre-draft workouts and now he's putting the mortgage on the Utah Jazz.
1: Colin Gillespie is going to turn the Jazz into uh, title contenders.
2: I'm just saying, when you have Donovan Mitchell and you want to trade him, it's like the guy who loses his job and finds out his wife is cheating on him, so he kicks his dog. You're just making things worse and leaving a huge hole in your house. It's horrible. I don't think they're going to tear it down for the sake of tearing it down. And if they don't, then they have as good a shot as anyone in the West, and yet they're a plus 4,000. Come on,
0: gentlemen. Peter,
1: are you, are you trying to make like some sort of Donovan Mitchell to the Knicks thing happen through this nonsense? Like, What's happening? Yeah, that's what's going on here. Oh, if that's a side benefit.
2: I'm sorry. If that's an accidental result of all of this, that could be very cool, but- I don't know.
1: So far, your big moves to take the Jazz to the next level are uh, Colin Gillespie and Doug McDermott.
2: Yeah, and a backup center who can yeah. stay on the court. <laughs> that
1: sounds amazing. That's all they need. What else do you need to get by Steph and Draymond? That-
2: and a little bit better luck. Well, you don't need you don't need much more than that to get past Dallas in the playoffs. Yeah, Mays has an analytical suggestion for you. His name is Mason Plumley. Yeah, keep Tom's spreadsheets away from everybody so they won't realize how good
0: Mason Plumley is. And then go out and get them. Sure. That'd be excellent. I was this close to getting Thunder at plus 100,000. Oh. What if they just go and take all their draft picks? I don't know how they pull this off cap-wise, but they get Damian Lillard, James Harden, and Rudy Gobert mm-hmm. win a championship. Plus 100,000 Oklahoma City Thunder.
2: I'm in. There are two teams that had an expected winning percentage last year of 600 or better who are now greater than plus 1,600. One of them is Utah. Hence my pick. The other one...
0: We were moving away. We were done with the Utah thing. Can you guys guess who the other one is? We're trying to
2: wrap up. I just want to say the other one is Miami, who's always a good pick in these circumstances. How is Miami plus
1: 1600?
0: They have a head coach, and he's top 12 all time.
1: That's all I need. That's all Utah needs. Have they invited any undrafted players in to work out yet, though? Because... That's the
2: Well, we can link this up. Hassan Whiteside may go back from Utah to Miami. That would that would seal bring the whole circle. No,
0: where you needed to go here is that Dwayne Wade is going to move from the ownership suite to the coaching sidelines and bring a little of that Miami magic to the Utah Jazz.
2: Oh, I've been paying so much attention to Jason Terry, I
0: forgot about that possibility. Yes. Dwayne Wade is not walking through that door. But wait, he
1: is. D Wade head coach? Question mark. Tom I just bet a dollar on the thunder. Excellent.
0: Smart move. That's why we're called the Underdogs Podcast. All I can say when Dwayne Wade
2: comes around is bring it on.
1: Oh, God. Oh, it's already been brought
2: Once again, just silence. You guys got to be a little quicker.
1: No, I was quick. Quick to press the mute button. I said
0: it's in There must be some clover. Some in the atmosphere. I said, Oh, we, oh, we, oh.